0: If you go online and look up how did Joseph translate the Book of Mormon, I personally see nothing but seer stone in a hat, right? And I, as a historian say, you know, I think that we need to step back just a bit and say, okay, what's going on here? Is this just an overcorrection or what? Because it's clear that there were the interpreters found with the plates, also known as the Urim and Thummim, those play a part and so, you know, that in and of itself to me indicates that not only was there a seer stone and a hat but there were also these things called interpreters involved. Joseph Smith copied out characters. Uh, there's kind of that famous Anthon transcript or Anthon characters document that people have probably seen. He copied those characters and sent them with Martin Harris to New York City to get them translated or to confirm a translation he had already made depending on the source that you that you go with. That's part of the translation right? And so, and then there's depending on how you look at it i would argue that in order to translate you have to study it out in your mind you know we have an early revelation about that these conversations with the angel the uh, angel moroni leading up to the reception of the plates was that technically part of the translation i would say that that's kind of a preparatory period at the very least and then looking at past or or later precedent of joseph smith uh, translating um it seems that joseph at a, at a certain time was able to translate just based upon revelation. In other words, no objects or seer stones or whatnot needed.
1: I know a lot of you fellow nerds are going to love this episode as we talk more about the Joseph Smith Papers and super grateful for Robin taking time out of his busy 25-volume publishing experience and life to spend an hour with us here in the cultural hall. You'll find out five amazing things uh, that you didn't know about the manuscript of the Book of Mormon. Plus, you get to learn all about Robin Jensen, one of the guys that's heading up the Joseph Smith Papers project. And he would be humble and obviously say, you know, he's just one of many, one of many working, slaving uh, at this amazing project. And tell you what, it's pretty cool. Every time I hear, get the opportunity uh, to uh, to visit with someone that's been working with the Joseph Smith Papers, it's just amazing to see what they are finding, what they are publishing, the immensity of all of the work. And so, let me not, you know, blather on for a little bit longer. Let me start this episode of the Cultural Hall. It's time for another episode of the cultural hall. And I am excited to share this episode with you because this was a hard fought episode to get. Now, let me tell you what I had to do. Uh, I uh, am great friends with Matthew Godfrey on LinkedIn. And I said, Matthew, I need you to help me get Robin Jensen into the cultural hall. And he said, listen, Robin's super busy right now. He's got some stuff going on. And uh, I said, okay, but if you could nudge him or give me his email address, I would love it. So I sent Robin an email, nothing crickets for Robin Jensen. So then a good friend of the show, Jenny Reeder, uh, her and I were visiting on Facebook and I said, yeah, what's the deal with this Robin Jensen guy? Nothing, ghosted, can't get anything from him. And she said, oh, he's busy. You know, he's got a little bit of a thing with the press recently. And I said, okay, I'll be patient. Sure enough, Robin responded. And here we are. Robin, thanks for being here in the cultural hall.
0: It's great to be with you.
1: Uh, it's exciting to be able to visit with you because I know that for the next little bit as we chat, you are going to scratch every nerdy itch that I have. Uh, people who know me, I think that they would know, uh, that I, that I certainly have a, a passion for church history, but I just love the weird nerdy, you know, did you know kind of factoids and, and you, uh, work with the church history department. Tell me a little bit about your specific role and w- and what you do there.
0: Um, first of all, I'd like to say that, uh, it's very rare that I get to talk to people who just love talking about nerdy things. So, uh, <laughs> I hope that we have five or six hours today to talk. So, uh, <laughs> Perfect.
1: Uh, right. actually I got to go Robin. I was told like Fort Gnome, just easy.
0: <laughs> so, uh, yes, I work uh, at the church history department. Uh, I've been working there since, uh, about 2005. Um, and specifically I work on the Joseph Smith papers, um, So the Joseph Smith Papers is a documentary uh, editing project where we uh, assemble, gather, and then publish all of the Joseph Smith Papers, uh, anything owned or authored by him. And this is done so that um, users of our volumes can uh, cite and reference those uh, documents without needing to go to an archive themselves.
1: And when I first heard about the the Joseph Smith Papers project, I was like, oh, cool, they're going to put like two books out. And you know, that's gonna be the thing. And it seems like the immensity of what this project is gonna end up being, uh, and already what it is, is just it's just massive. Give give people an idea if they're not very familiar with what it is.
0: Yeah, the Joseph Smith Papers is like other documentary editing projects where we try to assemble everything we can. And so um, when all is said and done, we'll have published probably around 25 volumes. Um and this is going to, we're, we're actually on the end of things. So by the end of next year, let's see. Nope, sorry, I'm i am still in 2021. Uh, it's 2022 now. So at the beginning of next year, 2023, we will have published our final volume. Um, and that's kind of a big deal because... Um, this has been a, a monumental effort to to um, get these volumes out uh, and so if you go into uh, a library or, or a store and look at the Joseph Smith paper section there's a lot of books in fact some of our first books were pretty good sellers because people were like oh yeah I'm gonna collect all these and then when they find, found out wait I have to buy 20 of these 20 plus of these they kind of gave up buying them um, but and that's okay I we, you know we're we're largely meant for an academic audience. So uh, we get a lot of libraries by buying our books. And as long as they're being used, then, then I'm happy.
1: Well, and it's a thing for me. I think I uh, kind of counted myself among uh, those that thought, yeah, you know what? I'm going to get those volumes one day. And when I get the opportunity to visit with other historians and, you know, as people do in the back of their Zoom, they have the bookshelf and you see that they have several volumes of the Joseph Smith papers. And I look at it and I go, you got a thousand dollars in Joseph Smith paper books behind you right now. If you ever don't want those, go ahead. I mean, it's a, it's a pricey investment for someone. To get all the volumes,
0: it is, and we recognize that um, since it's so pricey, and since the you know the ubiquity of the internet, we have a very robust uh, online presence. So if anyone goes to JosephSmithPapers.org, they will on the website eventually get access to everything that's going to be in print. And so we, we you know we we want to cater to those that are going to use our volumes or use our material and. Um, one way of doing that is to post everything online. And so we're we're not, you know, we're not in it for the money. In fact, if you um, honestly compare the prices of our volumes with the quality of the volumes and and what other similar type volumes sell for, we're not making hardly any money. Uh, all the royalties just kind of go back into the project to, to publish more volumes. And so w- we really are concerned about getting the information out there so that scholars and other uh, users of the material can can get to know Joseph Smith better as a uh Uh, either a prophet for faithful members or as a historical figure for scholars who who, uh, might not believe in in Joseph Smith uh, as a prophet.
1: As you look to the end of the the Joseph Smith papers, as far as the project goes in the last publishing volume, any idea about how many people will have worked on the entire project?
0: You know, we had this question uh, a couple months ago. We were like, wouldn't it be cool to gather a list of Everyone who worked on the project. Um, and I think we're still going to try to do that, but it is a daunting list. Uh, well, uh, if I had to guess, and we haven't compiled this list yet, but if we had to guess, it's several hundred individuals um, because we started, the Joseph Smith papers started out at BYU. Uh, and so we had a lot of student research help. In fact, that's how I started with the Joseph Smith papers. I was a research assistant and then I kind of moved up in the ranks. Um, but we've had student research we have we've had interns we've had missionaries we've we've had um of course you need historians and and archivists that work on this you also need um editors that uh you know can source check and make sure that our introductions and and annotations read well and you have to have product managers and you have to have uh IT people you have, i mean there's just it runs the gamut of like expertise and professionalism of of making these volumes the way they they look
1: It's an amazing undertaking and, and quite frankly, pretty cool that the church decided that they would do it, knowing that it's going to be the publishing of all the things, right? Yeah. Uh, is there ever, um, heartburn or heartache or, or challenging stuff that we go, oh, maybe we can tuck this on in the appendix. So maybe people won't notice this or uh, any sort of hesitation on some of those things?
0: Um, let's see uh, my immediate response is no but um there is um even myself i have some um hesitancy because n- not so much of oh i'd rather not publish this but it's more of a oh i hope people understand this that they can set it in the proper historical context the the 1830s and the 1840s was a different time period i mean if you if you remember um w- we literally were buying and selling humans as property in this time right. period. You know, right. the, the women were second class citizens. It, it was a very, very different time. Um and so when people said just run-of-the-mill things for the day, it can seem pretty awful today. Um and so yes, there are things in the Joseph papers that read very differently because today is a very different time than back then. And so um it it's you know, for faithful latter day saints who revere Joseph Smith as a prophet, we we sometimes forget that, oh yeah, he was also a a man and a product of his time and and there were attitudes that we don't agree with today. And so we need to kind of separate the the mantle of the prophet with the um yeah, the the foibles of the man and And sometimes when you're reading letters or correspondence or or whatnot, you find out, yeah, he, literally got in a fistfight with his brother um, or, you know, he's dealing in land transaction and making some dumb mistakes sometimes. And so it's, it's, this is a historical endeavor and we, we try to set all of that in context, but uh, we also recognize that uh, members of the church today might not um, be familiar with some of the uh, material we're offering.
1: It it always makes me think that I want uh, an extra verse of praise to the man. That, that sounds something like praise to the man who's a man just like I am, right? <laughs> yeah, I <perfect. laughs> mean, Because we certainly set it up in a way that we're like, whew, yeah, infallible, almost, yep. uh, especially with Joseph Smith. I think that we, you know, as we walk it out, I think we know, you know, President Nelson is a man and that he's called to be a prophet of God. And we we are able to separate that. But I think when we look at Brigham Young, when we look at Joseph Smith, I, I think because of time and distance, we sort of set those folks up Especially with Joseph Smith being, you know, the restoration of the gospel and everything, that yeah. I think we can find ourselves in trouble. Uh, where this is um, something that you did in college as an uh, as a research assistant, and then have you know come a- about it professionally. This is your life's work.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I really haven't known anything other than the Joseph Smith Papers. Um, you know, I I was the typical college student where I was meandering, trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and you know, I was waking up at 3.30 a.m. to do janitorial work. Um, and then all of a sudden I got this research assistant job and I found my love and I'm like, wait, they pay people to do this. <laughs> and, you know, it's still a well-kept secret that I'd actually do this for free if, uh, if I could, uh, figure out how to feed my family. So anyway, um, it, it's, it's a great opportunity and really, you know, I've yeah, it's at the towards the end of the Joseph Smith papers as we're nearing there I'm I'm thinking wow, what is my life going to be after it's like pre Joseph Smith papers, Joseph Smith papers and post Joseph Smith papers. This is really all I've known for the last 20 years.
1: Were you that nerdy history kid growing up that just loved this time period or loved the early part of the church or what drove you to even think that this might be something that you'd
0: like you know, I I was a very curious kid. Um, I I read a lot. But so you say
1: I, curious, and I say nerdy, but those are just different terms. That's fine. Yeah, hey, <laughs> I,
0: I, I'm trying to soften it a bit, but uh, but yeah, so but I wasn't really interested in um, church history specifically. Um, I, I when I served a mission, um, where did you serve? I went to the Netherlands, Amsterdam mission, um, and so I was I was a typical missionary reading a lot of stuff. Uh, I read. Uh, um, Lucy Mack Smith's history of Joseph Smith. And I read Parley P. Pratt's autobiography. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this is great. Um, and then I came home and I um, I was raised in northern Utah. So uh, I became the black sheep of the family by going to Brigham Young University as opposed to Utah State University. Um, and then when I was down at BYU, I um, was I, I took ancient Greek. I thought, oh, maybe I'll do ancient history. And then I realized that my brain does not deal in dead languages i just it was a very <laughs> it was a struggle to conjugate those verbs and uh, boy that was yeah um but then i i got a research assistant's job um and uh, actually i i didn't start with the Josephine papers i started with a professor by the name of ron walker um he he eventually with with others published a book on the mountain meadows massacre and so my first job in really kind of my first in-depth introduction to um church history was the mountain meadows massacre which was kind of a rough start to yeah. really familiarizing yourself with with the church's past. I guess you could say it was all uphill or downhill from there whatever however we want to term that but uh and then once I got with the Joseph Smith papers I just I fell in love. I I said, "Oh, this is this is what I want. This is this is the thing I I've uh, i've been meant to do so
1: as you look back on that before uh, being assigned to that particular project were you aware of the mountain meadows massacre i think there's probably even people that would be listening to this that go yeah i mean uh, what uh, indians and military uh, i don't know something bad tragic but yeah, they don't yeah. really know what it was
0: I was, you know, I kind of, I, I essentially knew the, the story, you know, this, this uh, wagon train came into Utah on their way to California and was massacred, and, and I, I think even at the time, I mean, this is again 20 years ago, but I think even at the time before I started, I knew that um, church members were involved and they blamed it on Indians, and, and uh, it, it, it was kind of there vaguely, but uh, my first assignment essentially was to go through. Microfilm of old newspapers and read all the accounts of of the tragedy, and so I got kind of the the awful details as found in kind of the print media, mm-hmm. and especially in California newspapers, which skewed anti-Mormon pretty heavily. And so it it was a pretty rough start of of reading articles saying, "Oh, Brigham Young ordered this, uh you know, awful tragedy and whatnot," and so it it was it was. It was rough. It was pretty rough. But, uh, you know, uh, working at BYU, it was great because I had the professors there. If I had any questions, kind of, uh, you know, growing up, you you sometimes connect th- the truth of the church with the uh, near iner- iner- inerrancy of the past. You know, all the Latter-day Saints had to be perfect, essentially. and And I quickly understood and was kind of mentored by professors and others that, you know, The gospel is wonderful and it gives us strength and helps us to be better, but we still have that agency. We still, you know, people still make mistakes. And so come to find out that Latter-day Saints did this awful, atrocious, horrific thing um, in murdering all these uh, wagon, this wagon train, you know, it kind of makes you see things. It makes you realize, oh, well, um, maybe I'll be a little bit more forgiving if I... I'm too judgy of my neighbor or my neighbor, you know, does this or that. So, yeah, anyway. Yeah,
1: it's an interesting distinction because um, cause I think that we, we sometimes feel like, you know, as um – as believers, you know, and and believing that it is the the Church of Christ restored, that we're like now nah, there should be some perfection, there should be some accountability, some extra level stuff. And so when you have things, you know, as slight as maybe someone lying to you, or as intense as murdering a wagon train of people, like it really does put it in perspective where it's like okay. It, you know we don't want to give people a pass for for wrongdoing, but to be able to say that wrongdoing can exist and truth can exist in the same place. Yeah. Yep. I want. Let's take a break real quick. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk about the latest volume of the Joseph Smith Papers and what's so gosh darn exciting about it. We'll come back and do that in the second block of the cultural hall. Hi, friends.
2: Dan, the laptop man here from PC Laptops with breaking news. Windows 11 is now here. It's fast, it's beautiful, and it's super secure. So let's make sure your computer is ready to run it. If your computer isn't powerful enough, we'll show you what you need to upgrade in your old computer to make it run perfectly. If we can't upgrade your old PC to run Windows 11, we'll buy it from you and give you a credit towards any new PC laptop's computer. Now, our computer start at only $29 a month, and we have 12 months special financing. Windows 11 is simply awesome! Bring your old computer into PC Laptops right now, because at PC Laptops, we really love you. PCLaptops.com. That's PCLaptops.com. Oh, hey, is this seat taken? My name is Kurt Frankham from the Leading Saints Podcast, and it's about time I make it to the back row of the Culture Hall and tell you what's happening. Your friends over at Leading Saints are organizing another virtual conference, and this time we're talking about how do we lead the rising generation. We're calling it the Young Saints Virtual Conference. That's right. How do we lead 12-year-olds and beyond in the church and even the young adults? They live in a different world than many of us when we were young, and they face unique challenges. So we've gathered 20-plus presenters who have a unique experience working with youth and finding success. To get all the details and to see who is speaking and what topics will be covered, visit LeadingSaints.org slash youth. You can find the link in the show notes or simply visit LeadingSaints.org
1: slash youth. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, if you are not yet a Patreon saint, encourage you to do so. Go to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. It is how you can financially support that which you are hearing right now. Uh, You're able to see the videos uh, if you become a Patreon saint, and you're also able to be a part of that secret but not sacred Facebook group. It's as little as $5 a month that gets you to be a Patreon saint, and we appreciate everyone who does that. Now, Robin, uh, the latest volume of the Joseph Smith papers. Tell me what number are we at as we anticipate, you know, kind of closing this thing out and what is so special about this particular volume?
0: Uh, I believe we're at number 23, but I could be wrong, but that's a kind of a, uh, the wrong question. The Smith Papers is divided into seven different series. We try to make it as complicated as possible, but... um, (laughs) You win! Yeah. One of the series is called the Revelations and Translation Series. Um, And that, as the title would suggest, that's where all of the Revelations and Translations belong. And so this is the fifth volume in that series. Um, And this volume contains the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon. And so we have presented in what we call facsimile editions. So every single page of the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon that we have has a photograph on the left-hand side of the page and the transcription on the right-hand side of the page. And so it really gives people as good of access to that manuscript as, as humanly possible.
1: Now it's an interesting thing because correct me if I'm wrong, and I know you will. uh, The the manuscript, this original manuscript, is this what the church purchased from the uh, restore or the um, RLDS Church a few years back?
0: So the Community of Christ uh, was called the uh, RLDS Church. They held in their possession what's called the Printer's manuscript of the Book of Mormon. So uh, after Joseph Smith uh, finished translating the Book of Mormon. He turned to Oliver Cowdery, who had just written 500, 600 pages or so, and he said, hey, Oliver Cowdery, good job. I need you to make a second copy of that. (laughs) And, of course, this is before Xerox copying or carbon copy or anything. So Oliver Cowdery had to make by hand a second copy, and that's what's called – that second copy is the printer's copy because it was taken to the printer's office – um, and set the type from that manuscript. So we have the original manuscript, which um, has a really interesting history, and we'll get into that. And then the second copy, which is called the printer's manuscript. That's the the printer's manuscript is what the LDS Church recently acquired from the uh, Community of Christ.
1: Which kind of a fun note? The third highest price uh, for uh, uh, what uh, uh, some form of script, I guess. I was interested to note that the amount that they paid was just tremendous and that it was the third highest, uh, purchase. So, so that's not what this is. This is the original, like, as I am translating and re- and this is being revealed to me, that is what this script is.
0: Yep. The very artifact, the very pages that sat on the table between Joseph Smith and his scribe. That's what we are presenting in this volume.
1: Awesome. So what I've asked Robin to do as we, uh, we're excited to have this conversation with each other, as I said, Hey, give me a certain number of things that you feel like people should know about this particular manuscript. And so he put together, and, uh, if we can get the timpanis to roll five things that you may not have known about the original manuscript of the book of Mormon, 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 Mormon. Uh, number one, you say, uh, What can we learn about the translation from the original manuscript? You sort of prompt that question. So I'd love to know the answer.
0: So um, this is something that uh, I think is, at least to me, quite interesting. Um, We often, and particularly of late, I think, um, have really debated about the translation process, the mechanics of the translation. What is actually going on? Um, You know, is are the plates on the table, um, who's present, um, what time's going on, how you know how many days is going on. And as a historian, you have to ask all of those questions, and then you have to look at the available sources and try to reconstruct the past. Now, historians can't do a perfect job. It's not like we have time machines in our back pockets so we can go back in time, although, man, that would be awesome. Yeah, um, it? But instead, we have to um, go to the – Sources and the problem with the Book of Mormon translation is that most of the sources are years, sometimes decades after the facts. Um, and so memory is a, a funny thing. Um, if you have two witnesses of one event and you ask them 20 years after that event what happened, you're gonna get different events or stories, right? And mm-hmm. so we have to essentially, inquire of Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery and Emma Smith and David Whitmer of what happened in the Book of Mormon translation. And we get different answers depending on where we go to. Joseph Smith himself wasn't very detailed in how he portrayed the translation. He said, "Uh, I translated by the gift and power of God. Now, that, of course, is true, but it doesn't give us as historians a lot of detail as far as, no, actually, tell me, tell me more, tell me what's going on, you know? And so we have others that um, give us a little bit more, but all of these sources are a little imperfect. So the original manuscript, however, is in some ways the best witness to the translation that we have, because it is the product of that translation. And so we can inquire of the manuscript itself, certain things. Now, it's not an explicit witness. It doesn't tell us a lot of things, but it can tell us some things. In fact. Um, you know, you can go anywhere from kind of a scientific analysis. There, there are, uh, it's called XRF, X-ray fluorescent scanners, where you can uh, identify kind of the, um, the makeup of ink, uh, you know, that level of detail. So, you mm-hmm. can kind of collect that sort of data. So, you can compile a database of different batches of ink. You can tell when someone is um, scribing, when someone's not. And so... There's all these things that uh, that you can inquire from the manuscript. Um, I'm just going to give you one example, though, of what I think is quite significant. So we all know the story. Joseph Smith and Martin Harris were working on the translation, and Martin Harris asked Joseph whether he could take portions of the manuscript to his family to show. Mm-hmm. Um, after some convincing, Martin Harris took the manuscript and lost it. Uh, and so Joseph Smith had to start again with translation. Now, a lot of people assume um, that Joseph Smith started from 1st Nephi and then went to the end of the Book of Mormon because that, that's how the Book of Mormon is in, in, you know, when we read it ourselves. Scholars for quite a while have thought, you know what? We think that he started with Mosiah, went to the end of the book, and then picked up in 1st Nephi and then ended the translation with words of Mormon. Hmm. This, this theory is called the Mosiah Priority. Not that Mosiah is the best book of the Book of Mormon, although it's a pretty good book, but that Mosiah came prior to anything else in the Book of Mormon translation. So this theory had a lot of um, consensus, honestly. Most scholars thought, yeah, that actually seems to make sense. But there wasn't, uh, honestly, a smoking gun um, until you look at the manuscript itself. Now, um we're gonna have to get in the weeds a little bit. Let's but. do it.
1: I am. I am here. I got weed whacker. Let's go.
0: <laughs> so the book, the Book of Mormon translation started in Harmony, um, or rather, it it took place there in Harmony, Pennsylvania, um, uh, and then at a certain point, Joseph and Emma and Oliver Cowdery moved up to Fayette, New York, um, with in the Whitmer home to finish out the translation. So, first part of the translation is in Harmony, Pennsylvania. The last, uh, the final portion of the translation happened in Fayette. Well, if you look at the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon, there are a, a number of different scribes. One of those scribes is John Whitmer. So we know that that portion of the Book of Mormon translation had to have happened in Fayette. Well, the portion of the Book of Mormon that has John Whitmer's handwriting is First Nephi. And so we know that First Nephi was the end of the translation period. And so that there gives more evidence for this Mosiah priority. In other words, Joseph and Oliver had done most of the Book of Mormon translation. And then when John Whitmer assisted in the translation, that was towards the end of the translation. And that was in first Nephi. And so that gives us this evidence, this this pretty strong evidence that that the first Nephi was uh, towards the end of the Book of Mormon translation.
1: Okay. So a couple questions about that then. Is the thought that like the plates were maybe stacked in a way that Mosiah would have been the first or that he, like we see in every seminary video, he just sort of plopped the plates open and was like, well, maybe I'll start here.
0: This is where we get to the uh, historians can't answer all the questions. And I, and mm-hmm. I don't know. So um, the, the he said that the portion that was lost was the book of lehi and you know you read the narrative itself words of mormon and other portions these small plates the the um first nephi through words of mormon were they at the end of the plates were they separate plates i've heard that theory um unfortunately as you well know we don't have the plates and so we can't we can't kind of uh identify where all these things come from and so um some of this is just questions that uh are very interesting to speculate about, but we do not know the answer. To them.
1: I, I think also it's kind of part of the narrative, or at least maybe the urban uh, myth of the narrative is that, you know, we started in first Nephi and we read Nephi talking about how he, he's commanded to write the things that his dad said, even though, You know, his dad's clearly written them. And we sort of say, well, the reason why is because all those many years ago, we, you know, he saw the day in that the 116 pages, which would be the first part of the translation, would be lost. And so, of course, he would need to recount it. And we sort of look at it as this divine providence and all these things, right? So what do we say about that if that's the case if this which by the way the Mosiah priority is the greatest name of like a, a film that you would see that you know is debunking the church things or whatever that's great but but what do we do with that does that destroy that narrative or is it just well we don't know in history we don't know
0: no, i don't I don't think that destroys the narrative because Nephi is still on the plate saying, "I don't know why I'm writing this, but I'm commanded to do it, and so I, therefore I do it. It's just a matter of when did Joseph and his scribes first hear about that? Um, and to me, that's interesting that uh, it, that that portion, that that narrative comes at the end of the translation. Maybe it's kind of a aha moment for joseph and and the Whitmers and Oliver Cowdery and others saying, "Oh, yeah, this makes sense. This this is this is what's going to happen with that narrative that we lost. Um,
1: so speaking also of translation, uh, just because I think it's it, it's been an interesting thing in the last couple decades about how I think the narrative for me growing up was certainly that Joseph looked at the plates and then was able to, to read them, right? I thought it to be a literal translation. And then uh, thanks to the kind folks at South Park who sort of exposed a lot of the world into, you know, Joseph Smith looked to a hat and, you know, that that there's the historical backing for, for that as well. Are there other, um, because uh, as you referenced, we only know that, that he did it by the power of God. Are there other narratives of how he was able to translate that maybe don't get as much light that would be worth noting at this time?
0: Yeah. And, and actually I've, I've kind of taken it upon myself to um, emphasize, I, I think we've gone a little too far in the other extreme in our discussion of the translation. So, If you go online and look up how did Joseph Smith translate the Book of Mormon, I personally see nothing but seer stone in a hat, right? And I, as a historian, say, you know, I think think that we need to step back just a bit and say, okay, what's going on here? Um, Is this just an overcorrection or what? Because it's clear that, um, you know, there were the interpreters found with the plates, um, also known as the Urim and Thummim. Those play a part. And so, you know, th- that in and of itself to me indicates that not only was there a seerstone stone in a hat, but there were also these things called interpreters involved. Um, Joseph Smith copied out characters. Uh, there's kind of that famous Anthon transcript or Anthon characters document that people have probably seen. Um, he copied those characters and sent them with Martin Harris to New York City to get them translated or to um confirm a translation he had already made depending on the source that you that you go with that's part of the translation right and so um and then there's you know depending on how you look at it i would argue that in order to translate you have to study it out in your mind you know we have an early revelation about that um these conversations with the angel the uh, angel moroni leading up to the reception of the plates was that technically part of the translation? I would say that that's kind of a preparatory period at the very least. Um, and then looking at past or or later precedent of Joseph Smith uh, translating, um, it seems that Joseph at a, at a certain time was able to translate just based upon revelation. In other words, no objects or seer stones or whatnot needed. Mm-hmm. That's a possibility, I think, as well in the Book of Mormon translation. And then also... Um, I'm convinced by scholarship that uh, um, has looked really closely at the text that um, he was reading from a King James Bible in some of those portions uh, of Isaiah and others that are quoted in the Book of Mormon, where, you know, this 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 is very similar to how he translated the Bible, the Joseph Smith translation. So um, is it possible that at some point in the plates or on the seer stone, um, he feels prompted to open up a portion of Isaiah and Read from the King James Bible and, you know, correct things as he's inspired. I think that that makes sense as well. And so, in other words, we have this entire spectrum of how Joseph Smith is translating, um, and it's not just one particular way. And so, I find that quite important because too often, um, you know, we're, we're troubled by translation. We're 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 saying, why is it that Joseph Smith is translating with a seer stone and a hat. And and I want to say, well, that's his culture. That's that's um you know, we can get into why that's his culture, but that, that at a certain point that makes sense why Joseph Smith is pulling out a seer stone to to translate. But there's also other ways in which he's translating. The 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 you could argue that the Lord is kind of prompting Joseph to explore different ways to translate the Book of Mormon that he uses later in his life. Um so, yeah, as you can tell, this is a very complicated question, and I don't know that we have a, a lot of time to get into all of this, but uh, I, I don't think that we should be backed up into a corner as far as Joseph Smith definitely translated the Book of Mormon by X means. Hmm. Um, history doesn't work like that. There's a lot of ambiguity in the sources. There's a lot of um, misunderstanding. There's a lot of weighing of sources. And so we need to uh, identify and and say, it's possible that he does it this way. It's also possible he does it last way. It's also possible he translates in a way that we haven't figured out yet. Um, but according to him, he translates by the gift and power of God. And for those that believe in the Book of Mormon as Scripture, that is the most important uh, statement about the translation process.
1: And it's nothing to say that he couldn't do a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B as far as translation goes, right? Uh, I mean, that, I think that, about... Yep. I think about like how I've led my life and guided by the spirit. It's not always, you know, a warm feeling in my heart. Sometimes it's like, turn right now, dummy. Okay. All right. Well, I don't know what this is, but I you know I've certainly followed it. Uh, how much of the original manuscript do we have?
0: Um, <clears throat> we do not have all of it. Uh, the, here's the interesting story of the history of the Book of Mormon. So Joseph Smith finishes the translation of the Book of Mormon and has in his possession um, this manuscript for all of the 1830s. And then they moved to Nauvoo and they receive a revelation that they need to build a temple and a Nauvoo house. Um, And so they break grounds for this Nauvoo house. It's essentially a hotel. um, And they have this great ceremony where they place the cornerstone. This was kind of pre-internet. So there wasn't a lot of things to do. So the whole town gathered there in Nauvoo and, Um, the cornerstone kind of think of it as a time capsule. They placed things into the cornerstone to kind of commemorate the, the ceremony. So they would put in coins. They would put in printed newspapers. They put in a Bible, a printed Bible. And then just as they were finishing up, Joseph Smith said, just a second, I have one more thing to add. So he walked across the street to his house and then came back with the original manuscript of the book of Mormon. And he placed it into the cornerstone. Now, um, Speaking of time machines, if I had a time machine, I'd go back and say, "Uh, Brother Joseph, maybe don't do that. Not the best idea. Because what happened is 40 years later, uh, Louis Bideman, who was Emma Smith's second husband, was remodeling the Nauvoo house. And he opened up the cornerstone and pulled out the contents and the water damage or water had seeped into the cornerstone and damaged the manuscript. So um, we only have about 28% of the manuscripts that has survived. So it's kind of this (laughs) sad occasion, right? I've talked about the importance of this manuscript and and the things that we can learn from the, about the translation and the text itself from the manuscript. And yet we only have 28% of it. Um, If uh, if we had the rest of the three quarters of the manuscript, we would know that much more about the text. Um, And yeah, so it's it's one of those very sad tragic things about the past but uh it it is what it is and we deal deal with what we can with this 28%.
1: Knowing that uh Bideman and obviously Emma stayed in Nauvoo and in within the Nauvoo house and are able to find this this document, how did the mainstream church get access to that manuscript?
0: Yep. Um, so Louis Bideman had possession of his manuscripts and visitors to Nauvoo would come and, um, you know, they'd they'd go and talk to Louis Bideman and they'd see the sites. And essentially what people do today, they go to Nauvoo and look around and wander and see the sites. But back then you could visit Louis Bideman and he would hand out pieces of the original manuscripts uh, as souvenirs. And so... I mean, this is like way better than fudge. You know, you get fudge as a souvenir. <laughs> or one of Nauvoo those
1: Nauvoo bricks, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> so you could go back and as a souvenir, get uh, an original manuscript to the Book of Mormon. So these visitors would go and then come back to Utah. And eventually some of these pages that were given out uh, came into the church's possession. So we have, uh, you know, Franklin D. Richards, you um, got a, a bunch and his son donated them to the church. There, there were others that donated to the church. So Edgar Jensen and Wilfred C. Wood and others where they either ended up with the church or they ended up in other repositories. And so the University of Utah Special Collections has a leaf. Um the Wilford Wood Museum has has several fragments of the Book of Mormon. But you know uh, some of your audience might be thinking that they're these random pages that are, uh, that have survived. And that's true in some cases, but often in other cases, they are fragments, tiny fragments, you know, sometimes the size of a quarter or so that have writing on it, that, that we then for the Josephine papers needed to um, piece together digitally so that they could be read as kind of a single page. So it's like this jigsaw puzzle that uh, you have all these hundreds of fragments that you, assembled together digitally to make them look like a surviving page, even though they are they still look like they're a very beat-up page.
1: So the 20, 28% never came. No portion of that 28% came as like, here's 12% and then add it with the 16% other pieces. It was all just a culmination of, well, he's got a little bit and there's a scrap over here and these folks have it and, and that yep. what culminates into the 28%. Interesting. Yep. Yep. We are so nerdy, Robin, and I love it. Let's take another break and let's get to the other three points uh, that you outlined that we can learn from that original uh, manuscript of the Book of Mormon. We'll come back and do that in the third block of the Cultural Hall. I want to take a brief moment and tell you about Best DJ in Utah. You can go to bestdjinutah.com. Who is that? Me? It's also three other guys that I have hired to work for me. Why? Because business has been so great. Uh, we've been able to help a lot of couples as they've been celebrating their weddings. Been able to do a lot of uh, holiday parties, uh, birthday parties. Being able to just to do community events as well. We do travel, so I know you're thinking, "Well, listen, I live in Nevada. I live in Idaho. I've even gone so." Far far as Louisiana. I've been down to Texas. I've been up to Washington. Uh, all of the places certainly is possible to be able to play music in. Obviously, you just need to get there. You can go to bestdjinutah.com. Let's start the conversation about it. You're getting married. You're thinking about getting married. You'd like to get married. Whatever the thing may be, bestdjinutah.com. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon
0: Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit Lennondesign.com.
1: Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, encourage you to please, wherever you are digesting this episode of the Cultural Hall, take a moment and leave a review. You like this? We know you do. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening, especially this far into the episode. Uh, So take a moment and share with other people either what you like about this or how long you've been listening or a combination of both. I know you can do that now on Spotify. You can also do it on Apple. And hey, the newest thing, you can do it on Facebook as well. It allows us to be visible. Think of it like Amazon reviews. You're Amazon reviewing the cultural hall. We'd love you to do that. Find and do that wherever you are consuming this episode. Uh, Are there stories of individuals who helped the translation but did not serve as scribes?
0: Yeah. When a lot of members of the church, if, if you would go into kind of an average Sunday school and have everyone imagine or picture the translation of the Book of Mormon, most would think of joseph smith obviously Mm -hmm. um there would be someone by his side probably oliver cadry although we should start thinking more about emma smith she was an important scribe but i don't think a lot of people are thinking about kind of your joseph smith senior or lucy mac smith who never acted as scribe that we know of but gave him kind of this moral support and, and whatnot but there's this individual Uh, by the name of Joseph Knight. Um, He was an early supporter of Joseph Smith. Um, He was quite interested, never served as scribe to Joseph Smith for the Book of Mormon, and yet he lived kind of close by to Harmony, um, and periodically he would go down to pay a visit to Joseph. This was probably a welcome relief of the translation, um, where Joseph and Oliver could uh, visit with Joseph Knight and talk about things, and Joseph Knight probably was interested in, in getting an update of uh, where are you at in the narrative? Tell me, you know, tell me what's going on, this this sort of thing. But there's this one particular story that I always find um, kind of rewarding and interesting. Um, Joseph Knight went down to um, Harmony um, and he had with him supplies, provisions. And of course, what were those provisions? Uh, he called them taters. I love his kind of <laughs> folksy uh, writing of he, he brought taters and the other thing was lines paper, so like he knew what they needed. Uh, he he knew the you know food and <laughs> things to write on. That's that's essentially the life of the translation. Apparently, well, he showed up in Harmony, and Joseph and Oliver were not there. Where were they at? They were out looking for work because they didn't have enough food to feed themselves, and mm. so here we have the interruption of the Book of Mormon translation because of. A lack of resources. Joseph and uh, Joseph and Oliver were able-bodied men. Obviously, um, they could do farm work. They could earn money, but they weren't earning money. They were translating the Book of Mormon, and so as a result, they were not earning money to feed their feed themselves, feed Emma, feed others. And so, when Joseph Knight came, he had to wait for them to return. And Joseph and Oliver. Um, we don't have record of this, but I can imagine that as they walked to into harmony and into their home and saw Joseph Knight there with his provisions, they must've seen that as a godsend to say, Oh, we don't have to waste our time looking for work, working for kind of this, you know, monetary necessity. We have Joseph Knight. That's going to give us the provisions that we need in order to, um, to fulfill the translation, to work on the translation. And that lines paper, you know, um, it it's interesting because when I look at the original manuscripts of the Book of Mormon today, I think of Joseph Knight's because those, um, the lines paper, that's called the ruling. Uh, when you have the pre-lines paper, um, you know, you, the college ruled paper of today, it's kind of a blue lines. And yeah, you got the
1: red line down the left side and then the yep. blue lines. Yep.
0: I think we can all picture it in our mind. Well, something similar to that happened with the 19th century paper. Although over the years and particularly with this man manuscript with the damage that it suffered in the cornerstone, those lines, those pre-printed lines have all disappeared. Hmm. And the only reason that you know that they were lined is because the handwriting itself is straight, right? If you didn't have the lines, you'd kind of yeah, <laughs> angle meander. upwards or downwards on the page. So Every time I see those straight lines, I think of Joseph Knight because he offered these this this lined paper, but the, that ruling disappeared. Uh, and often we forget the contributions of Joseph Knight. His, his contribution to the translation disappeared, but we know he was there because he offered the provisions. And so it, anyway, it's, it's this great story, I think, that um, offers us an insight into how difficult it was for the translation to take place.
1: What about Mary Whitner Whitmer in this space?
0: Mary Whitmer's the same where she was there in Fayette. Um, she already had a lot of kids. She had the farm was uh, a lot of mouths to feed. And then all of a sudden um, Joseph Smith, his wife, Emma and Oliver Cadry came on the scene and they were to translate the Book of Mormon and two thirds of those people weren't contributing to the work on the farm. And so Mary Whitmer has to feed three mouths and o- only Emma could kind of contribute to um, the, the hungry mouths at the time. And so we have this story from her, um, her grandson where Mary Whitmer was kind of mum uh, murmuring, kind of like complaining a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, she was on her way to milk some cows and just kind of annoyed, I think at the, Extra work that she had to do, and then all of a sudden she had this visitor come and say, essentially, um, "Don't worry, the things that you're doing here, the things that are taking place here on your farm, are of God." And so he pulls out of his sack the plates and shows her the plates, and so Mary Whitmer becomes kind of this unofficial witness to the plates, and she she tells her family this all the time. Um, uh we have multiple stories of of this event and so mary whitmer is blessed with um with a vision of these plates because of her sacrifices her her dedication to this work um at great cost great annoyance to uh to her
1: you know as we walk out the the witnesses though that i would read at the beginning of the book of mormon the 3 and 8 i don't i don't see mary listed within any of those names
0: nope uh for whatever reason this story this uh this experience was meant for her and her family and not hmm. for public consumption um We have other witnesses to the plates that didn't sign their name also Emma Smith talks about how she um lifted the plates during the cleaning and so kind of this this hefting of this very physical object was a, a witness to her. We have some of the siblings of Joseph Smith sophronia and, and others who who talk about the the um, sensory experience, hearing the kind of the clink of the leaves as, as they were, um, you know, uh, turned and whatnot. And so we have a lot of people, well, not a lot, um, but we have some people that um, had kind of this sensory event with the plates without actually having to, without having seen them or kind of a separate experience than what the three and the eight witnesses had. And, um, I don't know why that is. I don't know why they didn't um, sign their name. Probably the three nay witness statements were uh, more of a kind of a legal, maybe, maybe it was a, a male um, uh, event that they wanted to do to sound official. I, I don't know the answer to that, but there were stories of the plates um, witnessing to the plates, either in full or through a spiritual event or through other kind of um means that uh, got passed down into family stories that uh, we as historians have tried to gather up and to to understand
1: yeah, again as we sort of started this conversation you know you walk out that that time is a different time than now and to note that that all of the witnesses are men and that yeah. some of these other experiences are from women it could it could be as simple as that time and And that witnesses, you know, they felt maybe there was more credibility for men. And certainly in a 21st century, we go, well, that doesn't set well with us at all, as it shouldn't, I don't think. Um, but, But being able to look at that maybe through a 19th century lens might be a benefit of that. Um, as you've walked out the five things that you may not have known the about the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon, I think that we hit number four, which is, is it true that the manuscript was treated as a souvenir? Lewis Bideman saying, here, take a little. Thanks for your visit to Nauvoo. Don't forget to write. Send back. Um, but the fifth one that you did is, what are the challenges of sharing this important artifact that is held sacred by millions of members of the church and preserving it? For future generations.
0: All right. So um, in 1899, the Deseret News published a photograph of the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon. Um, now, this was, you know, kind of at the time when photography and newspapers were just starting to happen where you could combine the two. Um, and to me, that photograph, that photographic representation is um, interesting because this artifact is considered scripture, um, or rather the origin of the scripture that, uh, that millions of people believe in. And so people wanted to see this, um, people wanted to, um, touch it, to, to feel it, to, to sense of its power. And yet the manuscript was very damaged. Uh, it was very, um, you know, when you pick up a, a super old document or a book and the page kind of, crumbles in your hands that that's how it was like with the original manuscript of the book of mormon and so if you have hundreds or thousands of people clamoring to kind of feel the book of mormon touch it or th- this manuscript that's going to further deteriorate it so we uh, the church came up with this great idea let's photograph it let's share this manuscript through photography and so 1899 they took some photos of it In the 1950s, they took uh, a series of photos of every single page that the church had. Uh, A man by the name of Ernst Kohler, um, who was an employee of the Utah Genealogical Society. It was his job to go around the whole world and photograph uh, microfilm, essentially, family history records. Hmm. Well, at some point, he came to Salt Lake and and started microfilming, uh, photographing manuscripts held by the historian's office, uh, by the church history department. And so... He took all of these photographs of the original manuscripts of the Book of Mormon, and these photographs are very important because um, some of the some of the corners of those leaves flaked off. Um, and what it seems to have happened is that at the end of the photography session, I don't know how long this took, but at the end of that, you put you put the manuscript back into the vault, and then what's left on the table are a bunch of scraps of the original manuscripts of the Book of Mormon, and this was a different time, and so they must have just kind of swept them into the garbage bin, because um, there are some fragments in these photographs that are now no longer extant. No lo- they are no longer survive, and so you have to look at those photographs to um, sometimes read all of the text that we have today, and so, and then for the uh, Joseph Smith Papers volume, we took a series of multi-spectral photographs of every single page that we could. Um, now, the multi-spectral imaging is where you take different wavelengths, either ultraviolet or the infrared, everything in between, shine it onto the manuscript, And then depending on the wavelength of the light, um, it's going to reflect the ink differently. And so you can um, uh, pull out some ink that's kind of invisible to the naked eye, the, Cornerstone, um, some other uh, events have made some of the pages pretty invisible. So if you look at some pages in the naked eye, you're going to just barely know that there's anything written on there, let alone read the words. And so this multispectral imaging has made it so that we can really pull out that ink and, and identify the handwriting. And so when I talk about kind of this dual purpose of sharing the manuscripts uh, of the power of it, but also conserving it, that's kind of the balance that we're, that we're forced with. If, if we had every single member of the church come to Salt Lake City and pull out the original manuscripts of the Book of Mormon and look at it, that would be a very special experience for them. They, they, would, they would love it but the manuscript would not love it. Um, That would damage the manuscript. It it would um, further deteriorate the manuscript. And so it's our task uh, as uh, people there at the Joseph Smith Papers and the Church History Library to simultaneously share our collection, but also to preserve our collection. And so we've been able to digitize this manuscript and it will be available soon on the Joseph Smith Papers so that everyone can see this original manuscript uh to fill the power of it to fill the the importance of it uh in in the history of of the scripture that that we all believe in
1: pretty significant and uh as you mentioned that's Volume 23 in the series of Visions and Revelations, and you'll find it. You'll be able to find it online, and the books you'll be able to look at at the library. They're very expensive, but if anyone ever wants to spoil me with a gift, I'd love the Joseph Smith paper series. Just throwing that out there, Christmas is in fact coming at some point. Uh, Robin, there are three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall, and I'll ask those of you right now. The first question is, is, do you have a calling, and if so, what is it?
0: I am currently Sunday school president of my ward.
1: If you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick?
0: Uh, gospel doctrine teacher, and I'd only teach D&C.
1: I was just going to ask you which subject, and I appreciate that you said D&C. Uh, and then the final question we ask everyone, and we ask you to interpret it however you may, but the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith?
0: You know, um, I love our history. The history can tell us so much about the sacrifices of the early Latter-day Saints. And it also reminds us that we are all on a journey to try our best. And sometimes we fall. Sometimes we fall right on our face. But uh, so many times um, the, our early brothers and sisters in the gospel got right back up and continued their march on to building Zion. And that, that's the example that I need.
1: Well, Robin, I hope that you've enjoyed this experience and that next time when you see an email come in from me, that I am to the top of the heap, no matter who, no matter what the press inquiries are, that you'll visit with us and say hello to all of our friends at the uh, Church History Department. We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Brother Brent, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast, and Miracle. I told you so. We'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall.
0: Save me a
2: seat. It's sure to be neat. On the back row, we really got to go on the Cultural Hall show.